cold this chilly morning to uh, be here for the opening of the uh, Cato Institute's 2017 surveillance conference. Uh, you know, when we uh, held, I think, the second uh, surveillance conference back in 2015, uh, I remember speaking to a New York Times reporter who's, who said, well, looks like you've got a great program, and, uh, uh, but this is driven by a lot of the Snowden stuff and concern about NSA, and do you really think there'll be enough material to keep doing an annual conference about surveillance? Uh, and I think as, as a glance at the program today will show you, um, we have not had the problem of a, a, a paucity of surveillance issues to discuss uh, uh, to fill a full day. In fact, I've, uh, over time, cut back on uh, the panels and added more short talks because there are so many diverse issues um, that it's hard to fit in everything uh, that affects individual privacy. Um, that is a pressing concern of the day. Um, just today, we'll have coming up a discussion of an important Supreme Court case involving uh, the privacy of your physical location and whether uh, police can essentially track you, track your movement, or obtain records of where you've been 24 hours a day without a warrant. Um, we'll have examinations of uh, supply chains, of the, how to secure ourselves when uh, uh, our computers are made in a global marketplace, including in uh, countries that uh, are even more aggressive than, than ours about uh, spying on people around the world. Um, we'll look at how the Department of Homeland Security has become more aggressive, uh, both uh, about investigating people who are trying to come to the United States and about imposing checkpoints within the United States. Uh, and uh, just because usually our program is a rather depressing list of the ways we're losing privacy, we'll also try and examine some of the emerging technologies that help us reclaim it and defend ourselves uh, against aggressive surveillance, again, not just at home, uh, but around the world. Um, we like uh, to open our conference uh, with uh, remarks from a member of, uh, of Congress uh, when we can. Uh, in the past, we've had, I think, our first surveillance conference, we had a, a mechanical engineer, a rarity in Congress, um, in Representative Thomas Massey. Um, this year, we're very pleased uh, to have uh, an equally uh, rare specimen, a computer scientist in the halls of Congress. Uh, Representative Ted Liu uh, has been a, a fierce fighter on privacy issues, ranging from uh, global uh, surveillance by the NSA to the security of our encryption. It's uh, the understanding he has as a computer scientist, I think, that... that um, shows him how important for national security, as well as individual privacy, uh, the ability to conduct secure communications really is. Uh, and on the Judiciary Committee, he is well positioned to be uh, a strong advocate for those positions. So it is my great pleasure and honored, honor to welcome uh, to the stage of the Cato Institute, Representative Ted Liu. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Julian, and thank you to Cato Institute for inviting me. I'm very honored to be with you today. I'm going to share with you my story first because it'll explain a little bit of why I have certain views that are the same views as the Cato Institute. And then I'm going to talk about Section 702. I'm going to talk about encryption, and then I'm going to talk about facial recognition. So my story is the same as many of yours or your parents or grandparents. I'm an immigrant, and when my parents looked at a map of America, they said, we're going to Cleveland. So that's where I grew up. And 
Uh, we were poor. They went to flea markets and swamp meats to make ends meet. Eventually, they opened one gift and jewelry store in the shopping mall. My brother and I would help watch that store because they didn't have to pay us. And then eventually, they were able to open six stores. And in my mind, they achieved the American dream. They went from being poor to a home, gave my brother and I an amazing education. He is now a doctor. My parents still remind me of that. It's also one reason I joined the U.S. Air Force on active duty. I believe I can never give back to America. Everything this amazing country has given to my family. It's one reason I still remain in the reserves. I am a colonel at their Space and Missile Systems Center. But as I uh, got older, I would talk to my parents about why they came to the U.S. And it became clear that one reason they came was not only to seek the American dream and seek a new opportunity, they also understood that in America, you don't fear your government. And that's not something you can say in a lot of different worlds or different countries in this world. And they also understood that they can be in America, follow the rules, work hard, and get ahead. And that our government allowed people that liberty and that freedom uh, to do that. So my parents also sort of helped shape my views. And as I sort of I went through the California State Legislature. I saw an explosion in my mind of the federal powers in terms of surveillance, something that I had not seen before. So one of uh, the laws I passed in California basically said that California state officials shall not cooperate with the NSA if they come in and try to get private data on you without a warrant. And when I first ran for Congress, my main TV ad basically said the NSA is violating your rights. I may be the first candidate of Congress ever to have a main TV ad on that one issue. It's sort of an odd issue when you think about it. Uh, most people talk about things like, I don't know, healthcare or social security. I talk about the NSA. And the members of my district, the voters elected me. And I've been very passionate about this issue. Um, I am concerned about privacy in general. But when the government starts surveilling you in violation of the Constitution, not only does it violate the Constitution, but as you know, the government has coercive power in a way that private sector companies uh, do not. And so now on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, we have passed out on a bipartisan basis Section 702 reform. It's not a perfect bill. It's not the one I would have written if I was uh, the chair. It has a stronger warrant requirement. So as you know, under current law, Section 702 is designed to go after foreign nationals on foreign soil, right? Use the awesome capabilities of our intelligence agencies and their surveillance systems uh, to target foreigners outside of the United States. What ends up happening is when they collect information, they may also capture information on U.S. citizens because these foreign nationals may be communicating with, with U.S. citizens, whether in the U.S. or outside the U.S. And under current law, if they take that information and let's say they find out, oh, this U.S. citizen happens to like smoking marijuana, well, they can then prosecute you for smoking marijuana without ever having to get a warrant. And to me, that's a flat-out violation of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, as you know, the Fourth Amendment is pretty clear. It basically says uh, that government shall not engage in unreasonable searches or seizures unless they have a specific warrant on you. It's also one reason that uh, last term, we fought against uh, the bulk collection practices of our intelligence agencies when they were going out and searching and seizing everyone's phone records. Uh, they were seizing over 300 million Americans' phone records, all of our records. They knew who you called, who called you, 
the duration of those calls, the time of those calls. They could tell, for example, did you call a suicide prevention hotline? Did you call an alcohol anonymous place? Uh, did you uh, call some sort of a porn place. There were so many things that they could learn from that, all without ever having to get a warrant. And I can guarantee you the NSA did not have 300 and some million individualized warrants. So Congress reined them back uh, last term. It was a bipartisan coalition led by very liberal Democrats and very conservative Republicans. And we'll try and do that again this time with Section 702. So again, under current law, U.S. citizens and, and residents can be prosecuted in federal court uh, based on information collected without a warrant than in any other circumstance a court would throw out. So we put in a warrant requirement in the House Judiciary Bill, and it applies to when there is a uh, criminal case. So right now there is basically two reasons you would, two main reasons why you would query this massive database of information that we have on people. One is for foreign intelligence purposes. Another, when an FBI agent, for example, does it, it's uh, for criminal investigations. And right now, an FBI agent can just sort of query that database, get information, and find out you're smoking marijuana, you get prosecuted. What they'll say is, well, we, we don't really do that. We have guidelines that tell us not to do that. They don't show us those guidelines. We've asked for those guidelines. We've never seen those guidelines. Uh, so uh, I'm working with the chair of the committee to, to see if we can get those. But there's nothing statutorily that would prevent them from doing that. The bill the House Judiciary just passed would say now that if you're going to try to get data on someone and use it in court uh, under FISA, you're going to have to get a warrant. There is still a back door to that, which is, let's say an NSA employee is getting information on a foreign national for foreign intelligence purposes and happens to see, oh, the person, the US person they're talking to also likes to smoke a lot of marijuana, they could take that information and pass it to an FBI agent. So there's nothing in our bill that actually prevent that from happening. And then that person could be prosecuted in court on that information. Uh, so there is still a way uh, for people to be prosecuted without a warrant. Um, so it's, it's not a perfect bill, but it, it, it is better. The House Intelligence Committee has put out their own bill, which is just a disaster. Uh, they put in something, and I, I can't even say this with a straight face, an optional warrant requirement. Well, what does that mean? You might as well just pass a nice, happy resolution saying, go do good things, intelligence agencies. Um, so it's really a disaster of a bill, and actually, I think it actually weakens um, the current protections, the minimal ones we even have under current law. So my hope is that we can pass the, the bipartisan House Judiciary Committee bill. Section 702 expires at the end of the year. There's also 17 other issues going on uh, in Congress. I have learned not to predict uh, how the House Republican Caucus operates. I have no idea how this bill is going to come up, if it's going to be placed into another bill, what form it's going to look like. Uh, so a lot remains to be seen. Anything you can do, if any of you have connections to Speaker Ryan, call him and say, look, pass the bipartisan House Judiciary Bill uh, that came out. A lot of people worked on it as bipartisan support, uh, and it's sure to make funding government a lot easier because you don't have to deal with Tea Party folks who are not going to vote for this uh, in a CR. So. Um, that's on Section 702. 
I'd like to move now to uh, encryption. Last term, y'all remember the big sort of encryption debates when the FBI came out and said, hey, we want to be able to unlock everybody's uh, cell phone. On the theory that if they could do that, somehow they could prevent terrorist attacks. Uh, as you know, there has never been a known case where unlocking someone's cell phone in real time would have prevented any terrorist attack. What really the FBI wanted to do was to be able to unlock people's cell phones so they can prosecute people in criminal court uh, later on. That's a very uh, different issue. And so they wanted a, a backdoor key uh, into encryption. And, and as in, in their words, they wanted basically a key for the good guys. Uh, as a uh, recovering computer science major, it is impossible to do that. Uh, computers are neutral, right? They don't know uh, if the person entering a backdoor key uh, is the FBI director or someone affiliated with ISIS or a criminal hacker. They have no idea. That computer just knows if this certain sequence of numbers and letters occurs, it unlocks. And you've all seen how hard it is for the federal government to keep secrets. If there was a backdoor key in the federal government to unlock people's cell phones, um, hackers uh, would have it by now. Uh, so that's one of my fears, that we, we, we just can't do this uh, because you can't just create a key just for the good guys because eventually the bad guys will get it. And second, the other problem is we want to move to a society where we have stronger encryption, not weaker. Uh, encryption is what allows you to do your banking transactions without fear of getting hacked. It's what allows our military to conduct their operations in a safe and secure manner, which is why you had this very interesting thing happened last year where the FBI would be saying, oh, we want this backdoor key and we want weakened encryption. And then the Secretary of Defense will come out and say, uh, no, we want stronger encryption. We don't want a backdoor key. And uh, as of now, uh, that position seems to have prevailed. You don't see the FBI really talking about that issue much anymore. Uh, but let me sort of talk about another aspect of encryption, uh, which has to do with how you can protect your own data and your own privacy. Uh, so last year, 60 Minutes uh, contacted my office, and they told my staff, they say, hey, we want to hack your boss's cell phone. And my staff said, great, go ahead. Uh, they were uh, nice to me. They didn't want to mess up my own cell phone. So 60 Minutes brought an Apple iPhone off the shelf, gave it to me, and said, keep it for a week. We're going to try and hack it. So I was in Washington, D.C. for a few days. I went back to Southern California, uh, where my district is, for a few days. I went back to 60 Minutes interview, and first thing they did is they played back conversations I had on that phone uh, with my staff and with other people. They showed me everywhere I traveled, even though GP they told me to turn off GPS. And they also said they uh, can acquire text messages in real time. It was rather, rather creepy. And these hackers were located in Germany. And they were exploiting something known as their signaling system number seven flaw. So if you search for SS7 flaw, you can read all about it. And it's a very difficult problem to fix. So basically what happened is decades ago when we set up our telephone networks, everyone assumed every telephone network was a trusted network. So let's say you want to call someone in Africa and your USA telephone network hands off to a European network that hands off to your African network. <clears throat> now we know that some of these telephone networks are owned by uh, countries uh, like Russia, 
or Iran or North Korea or criminal syndicates affiliated with different countries. So if you just have a telephone network, you can listen in on anyone's cell phone, anywhere in the world, just knowing their cell phone number. Now the chances of a foreign government or criminal syndicate listening in on your cell phone um, is probably not as high uh, as, for example, them listening in on a CEO's cell phone, trying to figure out if maybe they want to do certain stock trades or listening on policyholders' cell phones. Two days after the 60 Minutes show uh, aired, the FCC launched an investigation. Earlier this year, they came out with a report that basically said, we agree this is a problem and we need everyone, including telecoms, to figure out how to make this problem go away. They're still working on it. It's, it's a difficult problem. Encryption is one way to mitigate it. So if you use, for example, uh, an encrypted application on your phone, you can download um, Signal or WhatsApp or Telephone. And, and if you use that, then even if a hacker exploited this SS7 flaw and they got your information, uh, it'd be uh, not usable to them because it's all encrypted. It is a little annoying because the other person also has to be using that same encrypted app uh, when you talk to them. But I think as we continue to move along in society, we just need to get more and more people smarter about the dangers that they face in terms of their own privacy, get more people on encryption. I've um, started to use WhatsApp uh, more than I ever did before. And encryption is one way, uh, I think, to, to better protect privacy and data. And it's really something that we need to continue making stronger, uh, not weaker. And then let me conclude now on facial recognition. Uh, I am working uh, on this issue with Republican Jim Jordan uh, from Ohio. When I was in uh, college getting my computer science degree, we had folks working on what was known then as neural networks and uh, deep learning. And we sort of thought those folks were, were on the fringe. Uh, their view was, oh, let's make a computer think like a human being. And we thought, oh, that would never happen. About eight years ago, it started happening. And that's why if you, you know, call uh, your, your favorite airline company or whatever big company and it's an automated response, no matter what accent and, and how you slur your words, somehow they understand what you just said. It's pretty amazing in terms of voice recognition. And it's because it's constantly learning based on uh, different data points coming in. Uh, right now, uh, I, so I talked to a USC computer science professor last year who was an expert in facial recognition. He says computers can recognize faces better than humans can now. And the way it works, uh, this deep learning, is basically you feed a computer a million images, right, of a cat. And then after a while, it figures out what's a cat and what's a dolphin and what's a dog. It's, it's pretty amazing what the computer can do. Uh, what's a little bit scary is I asked this computer science professor, well, how does it work? And he said, at a, at a very deep level, we don't know. So what they know is the computer eventually gets the right result. They don't actually quite understand how it gets there, which I think leads to all sorts of other problems, which is why yesterday I introduced a bipartisan piece of legislation to create an artificial intelligence commission, right? Because my view is, you know, better traffic management, that's good. Skynet, that's bad, right? So we just want to make sure uh, that we're able to uh, have a happy medium there. 
Um, but back to facial recognition, there's been uh, uh, at least one disturbing study that also showed that computers can predict with a pretty high degree of accuracy based uh, on a face if that person is gay or straight, which is fascinating. Uh, but it can also be quite alarming, especially if used right in certain countries uh, where you can be executed uh, based on your status. Uh, so I'm working with Jim Jordan uh, on putting out guidelines for law enforcement in the US to use if they were to use facial recognition. We're both concerned about the privacy aspects of this. Uh, we're concerned that people don't even know that their faces are being captured and then being monitored uh, by law enforcement. Uh, and so uh, we'll, we'll be sure to send the Cato Institute and work with you on, on, uh, on this legislation. Uh, so those are just some of the topics I wanted to uh, touch on uh, in this brave new world that we're in. And just wanted to say it's an honor to be able to speak to you this morning and thank you uh, for all of you, what you do in advancing liberty and thank you uh, to Cato Institute for all that you do. Thank you.